Welcome to You Hear It First, an unofficial, unfiltered history of MTV News. I'm Benjamin Wagner. For much of its 36 years, MTV News was where young people everywhere heard their music, movie, political, and pop culture news first. And from 1996 to 2014, I had a front row seat. Whether covering the latest music video, blockbuster, or presidential campaign, MTV News was a laboratory for experimentation and a place where rules were made to be judiciously broken. These are the stories behind the stories from the people who told the stories. This is season one of You Hear It First. On the Monday morning in 2008 that the Fed bailed out, shored up, and prevented what might otherwise have been catastrophic financial collapse, I was lying in a fetal position on my bathroom floor when my boss's boss's assistant called and urged me into the office. An hour later, as I struggled through abdominal pains that would lead to an emergency appendectomy the next morning, that's another story, I was notified of some big, big changes to MTV News. Those changes would ultimately spell an opportunity to lead the news organization that I'd grown up admiring, but at half the size and half the budget. It also spelled an opportunity to work alongside the indomitable, incorrigible, and indefatigable Ryan Croft. It was in industry parlance, a battlefield promotion for both of us. And for six years, Ryan and I dodged and ducked corporate snipers, bullets and bombs side by side. I was the digital guy, he was the TV guy. And he was an absolute blast to work with. Whip smart, can do, and downright hilarious. Laughing with Ryan was the best part of every late night. And there were many late nights. This week, Ryan recounts his remarkable rise from MTV News intern in the Santa Monica office to senior vice president of specials and events across MTV, VH1, and Logo in New York City. Ryan did it all in his 20-year tenure, from executive producing dozens of video music and movie awards pre-shows, to live coverage of Michael Jackson and Whitney Houston's deaths, and shows like A Conversation with President Obama, When I Was 17, Detox with Jim Cantiello and MTV First, the channel's first truly multi-platform interactive live interview program, in which Kanye yelled at me on camera, but that's another story too. So lean in and brace yourself for the awesomeness that is my friend, Ryan Croft, and his remembrance of just a few moments across his two decades at MTV News, featuring the cast of Good Burger, Kirsten Dunst, Julia Roberts, Eminem, and a tour bus contact high with the one and only Snoop Doggy Dog. Much more so in movies, honestly, than music. I was obsessed from a young age in not just going to see movies, which I love, but who made the movies, who were the actors, what had the actors right. done before. I mean, I think if I was a kid and IMDb had existed, like that would have been like my number one thing that I would go and yeah. sort of obsess over. So if a movie came out, I would go see it. Then I wanted to, you know, figure out who those actors were, go see what else they'd done. That being said, I was also a big music fan. And, and you know, we're close in age, so like REM, like I was, I came of age, I was obsessed with that stuff, but also Madonna and Whitney Houston and Mariah and all of those things that I think you weren't supposed to as like a boy at a all boys school. What were some of the early films and actors that made you feel like you could see yourself in that world or that you were really interested in? I think it's like the type of films that felt 
super clever or super cerebral in a way that I think like I was, I thought that I was more attuned to than maybe my peers were. Like the movie is honestly Heather's that I sort of point to as this sort of like thing that sort of made me interested in pop culture. Like I remember seeing Heather's and being like, this is so smart and this is so subversive and this is so cool. And I want to be connected in some way to this universe. That being said, I was growing up in Canada. I didn't understand that there was any way to have a career in any of these things. And I never, I don't think I was so capable of thinking outside the sort of lens of doctor, lawyer, accountant to sort of put enough energy into saying like, oh, how could I have a career in this? I just (laughs) went with the flow, went to college, uh, after college, applied to law school. And then I was like, I really don't want to go to law school. So what should I do? I did not know you applied to law school. That's crazy. I applied to law school. I was accepted to law school. I was also accepted to a master's in public administration, which knowing me as you do, you can sort of attest that that would be like a real misfit. Then at the last minute, my best friend from high school who had gone to uh, a different university called me and was like, oh yeah, I'm going to film school at USC and I'm moving to LA. And I was like, that sounds amazing. He's like, oh, you should apply to some program at USC uh-huh. and come with me. And I was like, well, what could I do? And then I was investigating and I found the Annenberg School and I found journalism. And I was like, oh, that sounds really interesting. So I applied to journalism school, but honestly, like, it's not like I had previously had any kind of sense of journalism as a career, but I think probably a lot of people say the same thing. Like I was the type of kid who was obsessed with Entertainment Weekly and read every issue from cover to cover. So that kind of spoke to me like, oh, okay, maybe there's something in that. And I loved whatever, like it's cheesy to say it now, but I loved Entertainment Tonight or Access Hollywood, those kinds of things that at the time before the internet were the only way that you had access. Yeah. And I had never seen MTV News because I lived in Canada. But when we would go on vacation, like to Florida, what have you, I would see MTV. So I was aware of MTV, but I wasn't fully aware of it. Graduate school at USC for film that I was like, oh, I'm going to follow. And then when I got there, you know, the whole world opened up because once you're in LA, it's like a different sort of thing. I'm very lucky because I moved there to go to school. And then as a Canadian, I couldn't work. So I just took a lot of internships. So that was your journey to day one. And was it the Santa Monica office? Yeah, the Santa Monica office. They had actually just moved from Universal City to the Santa Monica office. And I I had made an appointment with a guy named Buzz Chapman to come in and be interviewed for an internship. By the time I got there, everyone had quit en masse. And I showed up and there was a woman there named Nicole who was like, oh, sorry, he doesn't work here anymore, but sure, you can have an internship. Can you start on this day? And I was like, oh, okay like when the semester ended and I think the last episode of Week in Rock was airing and it was like uh, a few weeks or whatever before the first episode of 1515 was starting. So I was right, like in this right. very interesting transitional phase. They were still at the stage where they were faxing everything daily, but yeah. computers were on the way in. So it was an interesting moment in time. And I had an email address, like a Yahoo or a Hotmail address that I barely used, but then I got to MTV and they gave me an email account and that was like a big deal. It's crazy to think that like we were faxing things and like there would be daily, daily massive fights between the LA office and the New York office about them forgetting to send us our fax and us not having the things we needed. And it was like, right. you know, 
Give me a sense of your first impression and your climb towards like, let's say the first story you championed, you know what I mean? That span of time between like getting acclimated and actually getting legs enough to be like, I think we need to do this. So I think that I was really, really lucky at the time that I had this. I'll start with the internship. And I think it was really, I was really, really lucky at the timing of the moment in time that I walked into this building. I was a graduate student in journalism. Most of the other people were undergrads. So I was uh, slightly older, so maybe a tiny bit more mature. And I was in a practical program that was teaching us things. And I yeah. showed up on this internship and they had just gotten like their first DV camera. And so then very quickly... Leanne sort of tapped me and me and Leanne would go out and shoot things. And as an intern, obviously it wasn't that much stuff, but I remember specifically going and covering red carpets where I would shoot and Leanne would do the interviews a couple as an intern. And then when I came back full time a lot. And so it was like really just this sort of very lucky moment in time where like nobody had done this before. They had only ever used professional cameramen before they had right, only right. ever used professional editors before. And I came out of grad school with a knowledge of how to shoot and also a little bit rudimentary how to edit. And so as those things were introduced, I was like, oh, I know how to do this. And I say, I, I think I was lucky because I was, it's not like I was old, but say I was 23 yeah. and the other yeah. interns were 19. I just seemed that much more mature and that much more buttoned up. So I started like from a week after graduating. I have specific memories of covering the Good Burger premiere with Leanne. As you gained access to that you know, world that you'd only seen through entertainment tonight or what have you, like what was your visceral or intellectual or sort of experiential response to it? I think I just couldn't believe how awesome this was. I'm sure it was like being Charlie in the chocolate factory. Like I had come from right. Canada. I didn't have any exposure to any of this. I, I remember as an intern, at least first walking in, John Norris worked in the LA office at the time and- uh. To me, he was pretty famous and he would chat with me. Oh, for sure. Yeah. And so that was surprising. Also, honestly, like I had come from a fairly conservative background. I didn't understand like, like I, I, I understood what being gay was. I, I didn't understand this sort of openness. So I remember one day specifically walking into his office with a stack of magazines because we would get all these subscriptions and then it was, we would split them up. We'd take some to, to Heather. We'd take some to John. And I, I brought him a stack of magazines and the the top one was a Rolling Stone with no doubt on the cover. And I handed it to John and John said something like, he's so fucking hot. Or he said, Adrian is so fucking hot. I don't remember the name. And I was like, I think her name is Gwen. And then right. he was like, like, no, the drummer. <laughs> yeah. My mind was blown. So I think it was like all these different things at once. It was like this whole like sort of introduction to this like whole universe that didn't exist. I thought it was the coolest shit going. Like I remember as an intern, we would add lot tapes. Yeah. And oh my God. Taking footage that was shot, any kind of tape and having it submitted to the library so that it would be archived. I remember sitting there and going through all the various tapes and it was all the shoots that they were doing. And it was really cool stuff because the LA office would do a lot of video shoots. Like we'd go to the set before making the video, right. we would go to yeah. every video set, which was like really, really cool. Like I remember being on the set of like the puffy mace video, all these big sets and lights and uh, colored scrims and things. And just being like my mind blown. I was adlining tapes and the Pam and Tommy sex tape was in there. And oh, like, God. like I was like, <laughs> this is a job. And like, this is possibility of a job. And this is like, I, I, it was so that, yeah, the whole thing was crazy. 
I think for the most part, the thing was, we were all like, oh, we can't believe how lucky we are to be yeah, doing this totally. and being paid what we're being paid to do this. I mean, eventually, yeah. not at the beginning. The beginning, yeah, I was right. making nothing. <laughs> no, right. but, but at the end, I mean, I was like, yes, we're taking entertainment news very, very seriously. But also, I'm making a lot of money and getting to do this kind of dream thing and live in yeah. New York City. So, yeah, I mean, yeah. why wouldn't I be having fun? I'm wondering if there was a moment where you were really advocating and you got to, you know, kind of take something that was yours and make it real. There was a lot of emphasis in the LA office at the time on building relationships with celebrities and yeah. having access. And it was interesting because my boss had, before I got there, built this deep relationship with Leo DiCaprio. And I think that really set her up as a superstar. And when I was working there, I did the bring it on. I used to do all the junkets, all the movie junkets, which was a dream job. Like I started out as somebody who thought like, you know, movies were amazing and how could I have access to this world? And then I get there and they're like, oh, so there's this thing called the junket and you're going to interview all six actors for eight minutes each. And, yeah. you know, <laughs> and you're like, oh, okay. And then people now will go back and realize, like, if you look at specifically 1998 and 99, 90% of the junkets are done by me. Then I stopped doing right. them and, and other people start doing them. And obviously, like, the bigger movies Chris Connolly would do and other people would yeah. do. But I did bring it on, which, you know, at the time seemed like some little teen flick went on to be iconic. I interviewed Kirsten Dunst, among others, obviously. And then... She got Spider-Man and we went and we right. covered this big press conference where she it was announced that she was playing Mary Jane in Spider-Man. And then I was out somewhere in L.A. and I ran into her and yeah. she remembered me and we hung out once. And it's weird because we didn't really become friends. It wasn't really currency. But in the L.A. office, it was this thing where my boss was obsessed with the idea of, oh, you're following in my footsteps because you have become friends with her the way that I have done with other talents. And so that was probably one of the things that gave me a lift was that, that I had sort of identified, oh, I think this woman is going to be huge and yeah. I'm going to whatever. I started doing these junkets. I was 23 or something, but I mean, I probably looked 16 because I was really young looking and, and very small. And I would go in and the reaction would be, oh my God, you must be the guy from MTV because you're a child and everybody else is a journalist, <laughs> right? And so, first of all, that was great because I think I would get decent material because people felt, I think, some level of kindness towards this very young-looking person. I bought these bright red sneakers and I would wear the, these bright red sneakers to every junket so that, A, there was a conversation uh, starter, and B, they would remember me because the next time I would come, they'd be like, oh, you're the guy in the red sneakers. I interviewed Julia Roberts like twice in rapid succession. And the second time I went in there, she said, nice to see you. And I literally like almost exploded. And yeah. I was like, oh my God, Julia Roberts knows who I am. <laughs> now, I, I later realized that celebrities know to say nice to see you, not nice to meet you because yeah, yeah. they have no way of keeping... But at the time... I thought, oh my God, I'm so good at this. She remembers me and my red shoes. <laughs> you always, always had a comfort and an ease with quote unquote celebrity that I thought was really admirable where you seemed nonplussed, but also you're really good at light, fun conversation. 
I tend to sort of be in the moment. And so those type of interactions work really well for me because I go in, yes, I am probably freaking out on the outside, but I have a pretty good poker face. I can just kind of go in and have a conversation and I can talk to anybody about anything at any time and nonsense. And so that's great at a cocktail party. It's probably, you know, not great at a deep, meaningful, I don't know, 10th date. at a yoga retreat? <laughs> yes, yes, exactly, exactly. At a yoga retreat, for sure. Yeah, yeah. but no, I mean, so it's funny because because everything was sort of happenstance. I just applied for the internship, but the internship, they just kind of liked me because I was a little bit older, and then I got to do all the junkets, but junkets are perfect for that level of like just going in for four minutes, asking a handful of questions, but winning them over enough that they'll give you something that is slightly yeah. different because actually those tapes were going back to New York, back to you, and Robert and other people who could have put their hand up and said, you're sending this child who is getting bullshit, like send somebody else. But thankfully for at least a, a, a period of time that didn't happen. Then we very quickly got into doing movie specials and then a little bit later right. movie house. And I think honestly, what maybe catapulted me was my skill in the edit and willingness to like stay day in and day out in the edit all night to crash a movie special that like ultimately like in retrospect, you're like, why did I work three overnights for the beach movie special? But I would, <laughs> you know, <laughs> totally. I mean, come on. Cause a Leo, you know, of course. Yeah, totally. Totally. And it was a really cool job. I mean, we flew to Hawaii and yeah. interviewed Leo in Hawaii. It was my first time in Hawaii. And because Heather had a relationship with Leo. We were hanging with Leo. We were hanging with Toby. Uh, You know, I was like, this is the coolest thing that ever happened. Sure. And then I think my mind, I thought this access is so cool. And the way that I get to keep that is by working as hard as humanly possible and outworking everybody else. I mean, I also didn't know anybody in LA. I didn't have much of a life. So I was willing to pour all my hours into it. Give me one of your most random but surprisingly excellent assignments, like one that fell into your lap that you're like, meh, but that ended up being pretty cool, pretty exciting. We did a special on the Up and Smoke tour and Snoop Dogg allowed the MTV News cameras on his bus. So (laughs) I, I was put on his bus with a DV camera just to document what was going on. There was no talent there. It was just me by myself. So I'm on the bus. And they're hanging out and I'm shooting it. And I'm like this little tiny, you know, white kid. They're not paying any attention to me, but they are smoking so much (laughs) that literally, and I'm not really noticing what's happening. I'm just shooting. And I don't remember. I'm sure the footage was unusable because, because eventually they pulled over to the side of the freeway. And I got off and there was the car behind with Leanne Sue and other people waiting for me and I could barely walk and I like (laughs) staggered back to the car and they were like, you are beyond high. (laughs) We did everything Eminem in the LA office. And I think seeing somebody sort of like break on the scene and then become like an icon and a superstar and us go uh, with Kurt over and over again, Kurt would do these interviews with him, these massive sit downs and to watch like this, like a masterclass to watch somebody who was so good at it, who would ask like these really probing questions, but also like really challenge somebody who seemed like he wouldn't be putting up with any of it, but would actually was very respectful to Kurt and would answer Kurt's stuff. That was really cool. I mean, and it was interesting as like a, 
newly out of the closet gay guy to be in this circumstance of thinking like, this is really cool. It also feels a little dangerous. Like I don't feel super safe in these environments. Mm -hmm. Also, like, it's really interesting. We're having these conversations about his use of the word fag and all these things. And I'm figuring all of this out for myself at the same time that I'm hearing about it. So that was cool. We did a special that I always point to that was like the use of slurs in pop culture. Mm -hmm. So the N word, uh, the word fag and, and bitch in pop culture. And that was really interesting because I think that that was really cool to be at a place that was trying to lead these conversations. And, you know, we were all learning on the job. And it's difficult, I think, for many to remember and to contextualize in the present how few outlets there would have been for a discussion like that, like the N-word or bitch in popular culture, right? Yes. And it was a front row seat to this really interesting conversation because he was really fascinating in that that he drew a line in the sand. He was never going to use one of those words. The other two he used. And his explanation and then his evolution on that was really interesting. And by the way, all of that now would be perceived as like a completely different conversation. But 20 years ago, it was it was like nobody had ever talked about these things. I remember specifically like being much later in a management position and being told like there's this artist, Lady Gaga, and Kurt had come to me and was like, oh, there's this really interesting young woman, Lady Gaga. I think she's really, really cool. I think we should interview her. So I put him on the shoot at a document to interview her. And then he came back around and he was like, yeah, no, I'm not doing that. I just think we should, <laughs> we should do an interview. And actually, so as a result, Kim Stoltz did the first ever interview uh, with yeah. Lady Gaga. I don't think Kurt was saying like he wouldn't do it. It was more like he was saying like, I don't think I'm the right person to do this interview, but I think she's a really cool new artist and we should interview her. Hey, it's Benjamin. In our post-pandemic world of hybrid work, heightened performance expectations, global unrest, and economic flux, there is a lot to manage, and most of us need all the help we can get. My company, Essential Industries, is a boutique coaching and consulting firm specializing in individual and organizational strategy, communications, and collaboration. If you, your team, or organization need help creating, innovating, communicating, or collaborating effectively, Facing uncertainty with competence or leading meaningful transformation, visit benjaminwagner.com or email me at benjaminbwagner at gmail.com right now. I'd love to help. Now back to the show. How did you get to New York? I didn't want to work in that office any longer. I wasn't enjoying myself. Also, my my brother had a baby right around that time and it was like, oh, yeah, yeah. oh if I, uh, you know, the baby lived in Toronto, if I live in New York, I'll be able to be more present. So I had called Mark Doctorow at the time. And I was like, hey, if I move to New York, can I keep my job? And they were sort of like, maybe, like move out here and we'll figure <laughs> it out. And I moved and I got there. And Mark had subsequently moved out of news. He wasn't the supervising producer anymore. He was overseeing like news long form development for Dave. Uh, And I worked uh for him for a little while. And then when he left, I was sort of like, well, what am I going to do? And Jane at, at the time was like, oh, don't worry. Well, we got you. And then she left. And then I was like, what am I going to do? And then I just started pitching story ideas to Jim and Ocean, who were the era parents at the time. And so I don't, I wish I could remember the story ideas, but I sent them 
two or three different ideas for like larger think pieces that I think mm -hmm. they got impressed enough about that were like, hey, why don't you come in and work for us? That was how I made my way back to news. Because for a few years, I mean, I was there tangentially, but for a few years I was doing stuff for Mark Doctorow. I did the pilot for when I was 17, which then uh, went away yeah. for many years and came back as a series. And I did a handful of development projects for him before all those people got laid off. And then I came back around. It was like a leap of faith. Yeah, for sure. I mean, moving to LA, looking for entertainment work is a no-brainer. <laughs> moving to New York, there's not that many games in town. And I also, oh, it's worth noting, because I'm Canadian, I had a work visa through MTV. So I could only really work at MTV. And I was trying to be able to just stay on that visa and not have to figure out how to move to another job. So I just was hoping for the best. But to be fair, like at the time, Mark Doctorow, Matt Anderson, Jim, were all like, yeah, come here. Don't worry. There's so much going on. I mean, it was a huge department at the time. And yeah. I think realistically, people assumed if you could deal with the LA office, then you'll be great here. Yeah. Like if you've survived this long in the LA office, you must be, because I think I'd been there five years. So speaking of surviving, we were Battlefield promoted together yes. in 2008. What is a, a memory of that time? I remember the sort of good and bad of it. Like being told like, hey, you're going to be asked to step up here and lead. You've been working for a really long time for really great people, but under those really great people, those people have moved on. There's an opportunity to step up, but there's a really big task at hand. And what I remember most vividly is I hadn't had that much access to Dave before. Like maybe right. like we'd be on the, in the field on like a, a big shoot and we'd go to dinner 15 people or yeah. occasionally being in his office in larger groups. But suddenly it was you and me in his office <laughs> with lists of names, making these really hard decisions. And yeah. what I most vividly remember is that I think like, say they had planned the layoff, these big layoffs for September. And I was like, okay, all I have to do is get to September 1st. Like, this is a nightmare. I can't sleep at night. I'm really feeling terrible. I have to lay off good friends. I have to mm -hmm. make these terrible decisions. But September is coming. And once we're to the other side of it, I know these people fundamentally will be fine. I know it will be fine, but I have to get through this. And then they moved it to December. Like, mm -hmm. now I have months more of being on edge and being, like, out of my head thinking about, like, going and sitting in a, in a script meeting with a producer knowing that they weren't going to make the cut and feeling yeah. so like just awful, feeling shitty that you couldn't tell anybody these things. On the other hand, I also have very, <laughs> very positive memories of the rebuilding phase of like, you know, I think that probably on the news end, like the, the people that were working there when we sort of appeared with a new plan and they had to work really hard, like half as many people had to do twice as much work. They probably mm -hmm. don't have the positive feeling towards it. Yeah. My feeling yeah. towards it is that that period of time where it was your idea to build a deck on what MTV News 2.0 would be, what the new iteration of MTV News with 50% less people would be. And we spent a lot of time doing that. And that really felt like a bonding thing for not just you and I, but the three of us. And then yeah. that dog and pony show where we went and we presented it to Van and we presented it to Steven and we presented it to Judy really felt like, oh my God, like I've been 
working here for a decade. And finally, I'm in these really big rooms talking to these very impressive people. And wow, like maybe all of this hard work has paid off. You get there thinking like, oh my God, well, if I'm presenting a deck to Judy McGrath, like it's on. But then what you don't realize is that just means more work, you know? (laughs) Right, right. Careful what you ask for. And I know that like a lot of the writers feel like at that point it became so hard for them. But for me, it was like, oh, wow, people see promise in me. People think that I'm capable of something. People think that I can, you know, help be part of the solution. And that was exciting. I think that we both felt a responsibility to the people that I named who had gone before, who had all left, who I think we thought had built this really cool thing. And the last thing we were going to do was be like two months into the job and have it all disappear. So it was like, Mm -hmm. we're going to work as hard as possible to keep it going. Like to me, it probably was a Sisyphean task to say, oh, we're yeah. going to get back on air. We're going to get news hits back on air. We're going to go and we're going to beg for them and fight for them because I was too naive to understand why they'd gone away in the first place. Yep. But I think it, at the ripe old age of whatever I was, 26, <laughs> 27, felt like it's been around forever and I want to be part of the solution, not part of the last chapter. Yeah. I appreciate you making that point. I absolutely felt a huge responsibility because I grew up watching Kurt and Kurt was the reason I did it. And Tabitha, and they were the reason I, like, it was a place where it made sense for a person who loved music and movies and writing. It was almost the only place that made sense. My father still says it's all I talked about doing. So the fact that I finally got to sit in there with Dave and you and chart a course that we would then literally put the whole plane on was yeah, it was exciting and terrifying, but also like there was a sense of responsibility. I think that's an important point. I would say within a few years, it was not back to what it was, but we certainly clawed its way back into relevancy with internally within the sort of in- greater institution of MTV and Viacom. And I think in the world, like it certainly continued to be an important digital voice. And the amount of on-air real estate was way more than I think we would have guessed anyway when we inherited it. And I would add that the amount of short form that we were producing was more than we would have guessed when it was handed to us. That's right. It started out and it was like, first of all, it became a huge digital presence and you were having MTV News mentioned in the same breath as all of these other digital players that honestly in the last however many years has stopped being the case because they stopped resourcing it. But the time that, you know, plus there was, I think all these shows that were going to go away, like the Movie Awards pre-show or the VMA pre-show or some of these specials, we really fought tooth and nail to do whatever was possible to keep them. And to some extent, like that was like making it into a NASCAR. But on the other hand, (laughs) that was, I think that came from a place of being like, this isn't going to go away on my watch and I'm going to do whatever I can to, to make sure it stays. And I also think I was like, oh, well, I finally get the opportunity to be in the hot seat and produce these live events or to produce these news hits. Like I, I, we have to do it. That's why like we like things like first, you know, we were just trying to be as innovative as possible to come up with ways to get real estate or ways to get access to yeah. artists. It's an interesting time because when you listen to some of the other interviews that people are doing about MTV news, it's a different time where like, of course, the first place that Madonna went was to MTV news. What we're talking about is years later when it's like, okay, how do we create an environment where they will continue to come here even though we don't have the real estate to offer? And I think we were pretty successful at that. 
I think we were successful to a point at being able to bridge out a little bit and come up with series and things like that that we were doing with MTV News's name on it to try to sort of keep the brand meaningful yeah. within the building and, and beyond. Dave Sorolnik is like the Lauren Michaels of this story to me. Share a Dave story or share a Dave experience. I think that Dave was an amazing teacher in a ton of different ways. One of the things that I think I learned a lot from him was the live thing because yeah. he is such a cool customer and so <laughs> calm, cool, and collected at all times. We were live on the VMA red carpet. It was maybe the second or third time that I had been in the hot seat doing it myself. And something went sideways where whatever I had called to happen was not happening. And I pushed the button to go into like whatever floor producer was there. And I don't, I mean, I swear a little bit, but I'm Canadian in my thing. I don't usually, I'm not, I don't, I'm not much of a yeller. I'm not much of a whatever, but I was like screaming. And he like took me aside, like in that moment we were live, but took me aside and was like, it'll be okay. And I took a deep breath and then we got through the show. And I do think that it was like interesting to me because it was this thing, which is like, oh, I aspire to that because I did lose my temper here and I did lose my cool here. And this particular job is about that ability to just mm. always be calm, cool and collected, but, uh, you know, a few steps ahead of everybody else, a few notches less amped up than everybody else. And so in my mind, it was such a big deal that I was like, oh, I lost my cool. He doesn't lose his cool. I'm not going to do that ever again. The other thing I will say is that this is not really an MTV story. It's an after. After I was, I always say laid off. I wasn't laid off. I mean, that's after I was fired. I went to lunch with him. And after 20 years of working there, it always felt a little bit to me like student TV, like somebody had not paid attention to the fact that they had given us keys to the control room and we were doing whatever we wanted and we were having a lot of fun and a lot of adventures, but doing this thing. And so we went to lunch and he sat me down and he was like, in the nicest possible way was like, you will have no trouble finding your next thing because yeah. you have so much expertise. Nobody has done short form and live, and long form, and events, and political. And I left feeling like I was on a cloud, like I was yeah. the most accomplished person on the planet. And I had walked in literally thinking like, what have I done? I stayed in this job 20 years, and I am never working again. So that's only one example. But I think that ability to make you feel like you could achieve anything is what was always, I'm sure is still his superpower, which is that you yeah. felt like, okay, this guy believes in me, so I have to deliver. Ah, yeah. So that's good. So great. I love that. What is a, or are some life lessons that you learned at MTV news that you carry forth with you? MTV news was an interesting thing. Cause it, I often say, and I think other people say, but I was like, it feels like it was like a postgraduate thing. Like, you know, it was most people's first job or second job at the most. They were all learning how to function in a corporate environment. And it's interesting for you and for me, that 20 years, it went from being like the wild, wild west, like anything goes to actually being like a corporate environment a mature corporation and actually like tell people what they could and could not do and what they could and could not say. 
when I started at MTV, I thought there was meant to be a separation between church and state. So this was your job and your friends were people that you met elsewhere. And I learned there that actually that's not true at all. Some of the deepest relationships and friendships you're going to have are be people you meet at work because you're going to be spending 60% yeah. of your time with them. I think early on I would not go out specifically not make social plans or go out with those people because I thought that that was crossing a line. And then when I got to New York and I realized, no, the whole thing is like, these are the people that are going to sort of teach you about the world was a huge thing. And it is an interesting thing about work friends, right? Because you have these very, very deep relationships. And then when people move on, some people are better than others. I'm not very good at staying in touch, but it's kind of like high school friends where you might not see someone for a really long time, but the depth of the relationship is such that you can immediately jump back in. That was super interesting to me to learn that like these relationships have meaning and are, you know, much deeper than somebody you meet at a, at a bar or, you know, whatever. I think to, to go back to your Dave Sorelnik thing, I think the thing is that his kind of ethos, which is like, unless you're going to do it perfectly, there's no point in doing something. Or not perfectly, but you're not going to do it as well as you possibly can. There's no point in doing something is a really sort of great thing to take with you in life. Like don't half-ass anything. Otherwise, why bother doing it? I don't know if he would express that ethos, but that's sort of what I took away from him, which was always like, if we're going to do it, it's going to be the best possible thing we can do, even if it's a news hit, even if it is an article, even if it is a tiny little thing that no one is going to see, we're going to make it as good as possible. You Hear It First, an unofficial and unfiltered history of MTV News is an essential industries podcast. Please subscribe, rate, and comment wherever you get your podcasts and visit benjaminwagner.com for more episodes and information on our creative coaching and consulting services. Until next time, it's a good feeling to know we're lifelong friends. Hold up. 